everyone, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. It's been a while, and it's been sort of my time to recalibrate and prioritize my care and move slow, and I feel like I'm closing off the, the year and the decade in the best way possible, so I'm happy to be here. Thanks for tuning in again. Today's guest is a renowned fashion designer who we were luckily able to sort of steal from New York and is now in Miami. And we're here very early, bright morning, but it's sunny and it's lush and we're in a sunroom. Thanks for coming to the show, Becca. Thank you for having me. Becca, so tell me a little bit about Chroma. It's been 10 years as of this summer. Guide me a little bit through the process and the journey. Well, first of all, I have to acknowledge your sexy podcast voice is back. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an honor to be here. I love listening to um, getting to the root of it. I've loved the last few episodes and like getting a real like getting some food for thought um, has been a joy to listen to. So it's an honor to be here. Um, so, yeah, I started Chroma, this little fashion brand I have. It's going on 10 years now. And last year I moved to Miami um so where to begin well I um I'm from Virginia originally well actually I'm from Vermont I was born in Burlington I know we were talking about Bernie yeah and I looked it up when I was born he was the mayor yeah Bernie 2020 <laughs> yes <laughs> um so I was born in Burlington I moved to Virginia in middle school and then I went to the University of Virginia School of Architecture <clears throat> I wanted to be an artist when I grew up, but my parents were like, no, that's not a job. You need to get a career. You need to like, you know, we can't afford to have an artist in the family. <laughs> um, so I went to architecture school because it's like art, but more, uh, I guess, business oriented. And I really, really loved it. And when I was in architecture school, I became obsessed with scaffolding and this interstitiary space between indoors and outdoors. I love that it was public. Um, open to the street, um, but still attached to this building. And I was really, really obsessed with scaffolding. So post-grad, I did a bunch of stuff. I moved to Portland, Oregon. Um, I worked for an architecture firm. I um, was on a construction crew in Virginia. I did like um, carpentry, roofing, site work, gravel work. I did lots of, I loved um, construction. That was actually my favorite job because it was mm. like, Oh, what'd you do this week? Built the second floor. You could visually <laughs> see the progress of your, your labor. And I really love being outdoors. I'm a maker at heart. And so I've always been working with my hands and doing stuff like that. And um, Chromat kind of evolved. It was just something fun I did after work. Like I was working in, um, at this point, I had um, lived in uh, El Salvador, Portland, moved around. And I was back at my parents uh, in my hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia. A uh, place I never thought I'd return to <laughs> after graduating high school. I was like, fuck this place. But somehow I ended up back there um, and then living downtown. And I got a job at City Hall working as an urban planner. And I was doing downtown redevelopment work, historical preservation and things like that. And then after work, I just would explore this kind of ideas of scaffolding for the body. Um, so I, I would raid Joanne Fabrics. Um, I would go to Goodwill and get some leather trenches and cut them up. And um, just use, like, all this corsetry and create um, these, yeah, these, like, structures for the body um, out of the materials I could find. And it was just something fun. I would, like, put a, 
make clothes for myself and friends. And then it kind of evolved into something else. I started putting on little fashion shows in Virginia. It was super DIY, like empty warehouse space. My friends would DJ. I'd beg my friends to model. Um, and, uh, you know, they'd be modeling. There would still be, like, dirt on the floors. But people would come. And eventually, uh, I through a coworker at my day job, um, an architect, he was like, you know, I know you're into fashion. Like, my daughter works in New York City. You should co-meet her. <laughs> um, so he had a daughter that was going to FIT, and um, he introduced us. And um, so I would show her little things I was working on at the time, little, like, cage uh, bras and cage, um, like, waist cage things made out of this um, corset boning. And, yeah, she she was into it, and her and her friend started a pop-up shop in the Lower East Side um, for the holiday season. This was back in 2009. And it was just like a, you know, one month pop-up shop. Um, but they asked me to put a few of the things I was working on at the time in the pop-up shop. And so I, I shipped them up and they actually sold. Um, they asked me to send more. I would like sew them all by hand at my home sewer um, in my um, bedroom in Virginia. And they sold out again. The pop-up shop turned into like a full-time retail space. So that I kept getting more and more orders. And eventually I was like who's wearing all this weird stuff like it was like <laughs> these kind of cages for the body these dresses um I was really confused so I figured like it would be fun to just go maybe move to New York and um just kind of see who who's wearing this stuff um get into this scene I figured I'd have to keep working as an architect um get a job a day job and then kind of do this on the side when I moved up there, I got a, a order from a store in LA. So I was sewing it all out of my bedroom. Well, it wasn't even my bedroom. I was sharing, um, uh, like my friend let me crash on her couch. <clears throat> and so I was just sewing all this stuff. I would ship it to the store and then like I got another order. And then a few m months later, it was like, I hadn't even had time to send my resume out to architecture firms. I hadn't really had time to get a job mm -hmm. and so that at that point I was like I guess this is my job like <laughs> it was really I I know I realize how lucky it is now I know so many designer friends that you know always have a day job while they're doing design and so mm -hmm. it's been um a real like I definitely got lucky with meeting someone who you know had a store that was supporting what we were doing and and but it wasn't glamorous like it's still not glamorous <laughs> but at the time I was still I got a uh, apartment in Bushwick I was working out of that bedroom for many years um, I remember hiring my first intern off Craigslist and I was like this is the studio it is my bedroom come to my bedroom it's totally not weird um, I have one chair and you can sit in it and I will sit on the bed um, I have lots of pictures from that time where it was literally a chromat showroom in my bedroom it was like my bed became the place where we put the printer and some of the papers and um my like clothing drawer and rack was filled with chromat cages and yeah we even bought our first industrial machine and it was in my bedroom wow so eventually like i met some other designers and she let me share a studio space with her and then you know eventually we got our own space a few years later so it's been like a very gradual build for the past 10 years um, we ha don't have like private investment or anything like that. It's all been built over the years of um, really based on like sales through places like Nordstrom and Barney's and Selfridges. And so, yeah, it's been a gradual build. And um, I guess looking back over the past 10 years, the thing that I feel most proud of and the thing I love doing the most with Chromat is like I still get to make things all the time. I love collaborating with other people. Working with people outside of the fashion industry is by far my favorite part. Like working with choreographers and 
florists and tech like engineers like we've done collabs with intel to create like these adaptive responsive tools um garment says tools for the body and we've done lots of weird experimental things and i just love pushing the boundaries of like my own vision by like collaborating with others because maybe i have a small idea but it gets so much bigger when it's like in a collective kind of like envisioning process so mm -hmm. that's really fun and i'm glad i still get to do that today yeah it sounds amazing and i feel like you know we've talked about it like all the all the challenges for a young queer woman to actually you know like we were talking like we know the type of people who go to art school and you know the sort of generational wealth that they come from where they have the sort of like fluid capital to start a yeah small it was business. so frustrating because i feel like <clears throat> there's been so many years and there has been a lot of rough times like we've had collections there's no safety net for what I'm doing. We've had collections where, you know, we're solely based on what we design. It has to sell. And if it doesn't sell, then that's it. And um, we've had collections where, you know, I've had staff. No, we debuted this really um, cool collection called the Buoyancy Collection. It was all it was kind of a direct re um, response to the election. It was during 2016 <clears throat> when Trump was uh, running for office and then got um, elected and then our inauguration. D all During all that time, we were just in New York, like, feeling like our community was under attack and so we wanted to make garments that felt like um protective and um kind of h helping people keep their head above water during rough open seas so we made all these inflatables and it was like a cool collab with a crazy company in utah that does like outdoors equipment it was like the most random thing i just emailed them they're like info at climate.co <laughs> it's like hello i'm a fashion brand would you like to make inflatables with me they were like this is weird but sure so we made all these cool things and it w i felt like it was a real like statement about i don't know like community freedom because we were making all these garments that could literally keep people alive like in water they were all inflatable and to aid in buoyancy and yet it fell flat with the retailers. Like no one was interested in buying the garments. We really had a tough season. We didn't sell very much. And so I had to lay off my whole team. And it was really just me and a couple student interns mm -hmm. for like six months or a year before I was able to build up the capital to like, you know, hire someone again. It's been rough. Like it's been not cute along mm -hmm. the way. And um, I don't know. I just, I feel like every time I get to design a new collection it's an honor and it's a privilege that people actually want to see what we're up to and, and want to work with us so it's not lost on me that um but yeah what I was saying was it was so frustrating during all those times to read little profiles on fashion designers and be like oh yeah like Joseph Altazura started his brand with you know um his his parents loaned him two hundred thousand dollars and I'm like what yeah I mean with that kind of money do you know what I could yeah. do <laughs> but it, I mean that's so typical in fashion there's so many people who come from wealth who you know open a brand straight out of college or you know just kind of doing it like even Alexander Wang his parents owned factories you know and mm. um there's just so many it's a lot easier when you come from money to start any creative endeavor I mean there's yeah that's like no and I think well, when I think about fashion as an industry and like I zoom out a little bit it's you know I didn't know about these specific folks and like where they came from but it's like it's typically like okay capital class and then these are the children of, of the capital elite class then who go into these industries so it's it's no surprise that then you know they sort of reproduce the same cultural yeah. taste of that elite and you know we know what that means 
you know, you also, I feel like it's been a big year for you, aside from the 10-year anniversary. You also did a TED Talk. You know, the press loves you. And something I find fascinating about sort of, like, the the space that you navigate is that on one end, you know, everyday people love the brand. And people who know you love you because you're this authentic person with radical views. It's not just because Chroma is, like, innovative and has has interesting collaborations and it's not just because of the diverse casting and the models and who's behind the scenes i think it's just you're not afraid to take risks and in every moving part and it shows and then at the same time because we're kind of in like this weird part where like uh inclusivity and positive body positivity and diversity are being commodified because it sells you have like establishment also kind of like you know, really fuck with Chroma. So I think it's like these two very different worlds that you can sort of navigate. I don't know if you can guide me a little bit through that. Yeah, there's so much to unpack within <laughs> that. There's just been so many. I don't know. I guess this is the first time I've really talked post-TED talk to anyone about that experience, but that was terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. As soon as I got um an email from the TED team about like, oh, we're interested in possibly having you speak, like, I got a pit in my stomach and I knew exactly what I needed to say. Like I knew it was going to be this place where I would talk about having an eating disorder for really the most um, biggest like time. I don't know. I feel like in the the past, like, you know, talking about why having different body sizes on the runway, it's, you know, I've been dancing around this issue of like my own experience growing up and how hard it was just living in a like, being a teen girl and looking at ads and being like, oh, okay, well, this is what's celebrated. This is what's beautiful. So that's what I want to be. I want to be desired. I want to be, mm-hmm. you know, um, be considered beautiful or being. Um, so, yeah, I knew like as soon as I got the email from Ted, I was like, oh, I need to like kind of talk about my own experience. Mm-hmm. And so I was absolutely terrified to speak on such a public forum about like having an eating disorder and being um, kind of. Uh, I guess in this like having this experience that was so life-changing and so negative um, I feel like I've been running from talking about it for so many years and just focusing on creating the world I want to see not so much dwelling on things that have happened in the past just trying to move forward but at that point I was like all right I need to like really dig this up and kind of see it for what it is and see how it has affected my life and affected how I want to yeah envision the future. Mm-hmm. And I was like sweating bullets um, backstage, <laughs> but it, the process was really um, intense. They had me write a whole script. The script had to be approved by like a ton of editors. Wow. They, they had me, they gave me a speech coach who like coached me on memorizing this whole script. At first it was like 15 minutes of memorization. This was like two weeks before the talk. I was like, fuck. Oh my God. I'm so, there's no like, there's no notes. There's no, um, what do you call those readers? Yeah, there's like no little- uh, screen. So I was positively terrified, but she was like giving me good advice. Like, you know, if you're a visual person, you don't want to rehearse your script looking in the same direction in the same room every time because you're going to be like, okay, that leaf is like that (laughs) chapter. This cup is so like I would practice in different like ways. I would record myself saying it and listen back. I was so scared um, to to be up there and like, yeah, looking back at it now, I'm like, oh, I look so sweaty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was um, great. Yeah. So it was, uh, I feel like maybe a, um, a catharsis to mm-hmm. kind of really get that out there and be like, listen, this, 
this is what I experienced and I know it to be true and I don't want other people to go through this and here's how I'm going to change the industry mm -hmm. to make it so not so prevalent because I think so many people regardless of their gender or place in this world are affected by what we see and by the media um and um so yeah doing the TED talk was cool it was crazy it was scary but I'm <laughs> glad that it happened and um and so yeah but I would say in response to straddling these two worlds of like creative activism and also like being with the elites I think the elites of fashion and the the vogues and everything <laughs> I, I was so equally scared um so I did this program called the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund which is when the CFDA which is the Council of Fashion Designers of America it's like a um, national organization for all fashion and Vogue they choose 10 emerging designers every year American designers to compete for a prize and then the winner gets a chunk of money and a mentorship and I um, applied, well, I applied three times. The first time I applied, I emailed, you have to email for an application. Immediately got a response. Nope, we've reviewed your um, work wow. and we've decided you're not right for application. I didn't even get to apply. Wow. It was like a door slammed in my face. Um, next year I applied. I actually got the application, so hey. <laughs> um, uh, so I went through that process and, and was chosen as one of the 10 and um and yeah the imposter syndrome is real like i was petrified there was at the time vogue and like all the people who work for vogue were very tall very blonde and always like wearing chanel and you know like Ugh. super designer like and i was just like wearing my docs and like my ripped like i don't know um diy vibes um you know i was just really scared um luckily I had, I think like the biggest takeaway from that, like it was great to meet Anna Wintour. Like I know what a privilege it is to be in those spaces and I'm not, I don't want to like not acknowledge that mm -hmm. that was such an honor. And I know how many other designers would like have, you know, messaged me like, how did you even apply? Um, but being there, like, I think the biggest takeaway was just that, like the people in the trenches with you, like uh, I loved meeting the fellow designers that did the program with me. Those have become some of my closest friends in the industry. And those are the people that have helped me more than Anna Wintour or, you know, anyone else. Like when, you know, I'm having to produce a collection in my factory that makes the fabric is ignoring me and my deadlines are, you know, happening. It's been other designers to be like, try this factory, like mm -hmm. go with them. Or like if I'm trying to get a sales showroom, and I'm trying to negotiate the price. It's been another designer who's like, well, this is my percentage that they like take from me. So try to use this percentage. It's been like so many uh, different people uh, in the trenches with me have helped me. And like, and I want to do that for, for other people. And it's, it's really like been eye opening. I feel like, I think Issa Rae said this on a panel once that like networking sideways is really more important than trying to network up and kind of like trying to reach these like upper echelons of the industry. Like, so that was like a really big takeaway is that, you know, I just love hanging out with other creative designers and they've helped me so much. Hopefully we've helped each other. Yeah. And, you know, another thing about like the elites and the people at the top, and especially in this industry, is that, you know, even when you're sharing space and whatever honor and privilege it might be, we also recognize like these are people that for the most part are invested in like reproducing like a 
white supremacist cultural sort of like hegemonic taste and then you know normalize that to people and it, and my sense is that you're completely invested in disrupting that time and time again um so let's talk a little bit about what went down with business of fashion and kirby um i remember reading the article and again i'm not like a super fashion head and anyone who's listening to this i am learning along <laughs> every question so these are genuine questions but i remember um Helen actually sent this to me and she was like, this is huge. I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are, but I'll read it. And then I was like, oh, this seems huge. Um, and I remember Chromat was mentioned in the in the article of, of brands and people he was suggesting that are actually um, embodying this sort of disruption and not just like on the bandwagon or just doing it for a collection or just, you know, for a campaign or whatever it might be. Yeah, Kirby, I love um, the designer for a brand called Pierre Moss, Kirby Jean Raymond. I admire him so much. So what happened with the BOF? Basically, the business of fashion is a really esteemed publication in the industry. It's kind of the vogue of like, uh, I think they're based in London. So it's like Euro, like elite um, fashion publication. Every year they choose the BOF 500 where they acknowledge like 500 industry leaders. They have a um, gala, gala. I never know how to pronounce it. I don't know. I always say gala, (laughs) but I know that sounds Southern. Um, (laughs) So anyway, um, Kirby was honored as one of the 500. And the day after the the gala event, uh, he wrote a big piece about why he wants to um, like, what do you call it? Uh, Disassociate Mm -hmm. from the BOF um he's like the BOF 500 is now 499 I'm out um but basically he was calling out like how he felt that he had been kind of gleaned for information by the editor-in-chief um they had I guess offered him a cover of the publication for that um issue which the issue and the whole BOF um event was centered around diversity and inclusion (laughs) as the theme um there's so many different things that I'd love to like get into about that but um <clears throat> so yeah they had interviewed him for a possible cover story ended up pulling the cover um and he felt like used because so much of what he suggested um was taken um but he wasn't acknowledged like you know when people were getting up on the mic and thanking all the people that made it possible they also had a multiracial choir um which felt like not genuine for a lot of people in attendance. Pierre Moss has always had black choirs um, mm-hmm. uh, present during their runway shows. And so there was just a lot of things where it was like, it felt like they were kind of um, picking and choosing things from his authentic living experience to kind of put out on a platter um, without like acknowledging the root of it. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of, but I've um, known Kirby for a while and one thing that I really, really admire and respect about him is he's not afraid to tell how it is and call a spade a spade. And I think this was like the biggest, most public um, example of that. But before, in 2015, he actually, I feel like one of his first shows in New York Fashion Week, he debuted a collection solely based around um, police brutality and his experience as a black man um, living in New York Um, But it was right around the time of Eric Gardner being choked by police in Mm. Staten Island. Um, It was right around the time of Black Lives Matter really first popping out. And um, 
So he built this entire collection that showed at New York Fashion Week all about police brutality. There was like blood splattering on the shoes. There was I Can't Breathe, which is Eric Gardner's last words um, on the backs of some of the clothing. And so he made this whole collection about this traumatic, you know, really um, scary experience that so many people have um, experienced um, at the hands of, of cops. And, you know, it got a lot of press, but um, a lot of, he lost a lot um, after that show. I think the next day I was reading um, an article by Lindsay Peoples-Wagner and Decott and about being black um, in fashion. But the, he um, is interviewed saying the day after that police brutality show, I lost seven accounts, like seven stores dropped me right as soon as that mm-hmm. show came out um, at the I also heard that he his he had investors at the time in his company and they were not um, keen on the direction that the um, company was taking. And he ended up having to buy them out because they didn't you know really believe in that vision. There's just so much pushback within the industry. The industry doesn't want to talk about... It was super taboo at the time to even talk about race. I mean, things have changed, I feel like, really fast in the dialogues. But at the time, like, no one was trying to get on that dialogue with him. And so it, I, I really respected him for a long time, knowing that he was really willing to risk it all to make a statement and to really share his truth. And um, so I've always admired him. And so... You know, when I see him kind of standing up to one of these big publications, like people are terrified to call this. this, I would also say that like this kind of gleaning of information, it happens frequently. Like I know many designers who have felt like, you know, their vision has been co-opted by big brands and it happens a lot, but it doesn't get called out a lot because people are scared and people, a lot of designers realize how tenuous and fragile their little position in the industry is and they wouldn't want to be blacklisted from um, publications like this by speaking out. And so for Kirby to be like, you know what? I don't need your recognition. I don't need your acknowledgement. Like, you know, I know that my voice is um, important in this industry and to just have the strength to call people out, that was really admirable. And so, yeah, I really respect what he's doing. And going to his runway shows, like it feels like he has so much to say. He uses fashion as a medium to tell stories about the culture and to, um, especially this past season, he was um, kind of bringing back um, African-American and black history in America, telling the stories of people whose stories haven't been told in these spaces, um, like the um, origins of rock and roll in America. Mm-hmm. I don't know, he also had like, a, I want to say it was like a preacher or a minister come out before the show and just t- telling stories about, um, you know, the black experience through slavery in America. And I feel mm. like, what other fashion show would really go that deep to have people sit there and meditate on the experience of slavery in America and how that relates to how black people are treated today in the fashion industry and beyond. Like it was just going to his shows feels like eating like a full meal and going to other shows. It feels like, you know, like flavored (laughs) water without the flavor. It's just like, you know, it's about a new fabric or it's about like, I don't know, showing men's and women's collections together. Like I just, there's just so much fluff. And his his shows always have a real vision and a real purpose, and I really appreciate people that are doing that kind of work in the fashion industry. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you walk me through that, even as someone who you know isn't doesn't feel like super gravitated towards the industry, but it's it's just the idea that as creative, as artists, as just people in this world, if we're not using 
whatever mediums, whatever platforms, whatever creative endeavors we're part of, to not tell the truth, I really, I really question what is the purpose of what people are doing. And I just wonder, like, some people are telling their truth, but some people's truth is not necessarily. No, yeah. Like, I feel like <laughs> so much of what we talk about, um, you know, this historic, this historic, like, centering of white um, supremacy in the fashion industry. Fashion, you know, really evolved as a appendage of the elite to create these kind of structural systems of, like, differentiating yourself from those who are um, not able to afford high fashion and being exclusive that aura of exclusivity is what fashion is built on and it's it's so um it's so indicative when you see these kind of all white um all skinny models all cisgender models you see these runway shows and you're like that like it really is the world that those some of those designers live in they really have no black friends they really have no you know they don't like it's just i i feel the industry can't truly change until designers are equally as diverse as like what the models have become you know i think we talked about this but it's like at this point casting diverse models is really the bare minimum it's truly Mm -hmm. easy at this point to hire a model of color hire a trans model hire um you know a model of different ability it's there's agencies now that didn't exist five or ten years ago you can really it's it's at the the at your fingertips and i feel like to be truly inclusive as a fashion brand or a brand in general, it matters who's behind the scenes making the decisions, who's at the table with the um, um, decision-making power, who's shooting your collections. Is it, is it all white men? Like male photographers in the fashion industry have such a um, uh, historical place. Like the male gaze is so prevalent in the fashion industry. There's just so many things to break down mm-hmm. um, that relate to the images that we're also saturated with like there's so many decisions that happen behind the scenes that if they're not inclusively collectively created it's still going to be the same old shit exactly i think you you stated it so perfectly like everyone behind the scenes from not just like casting director but who's the stylist who's doing the makeup i mean makeup is so damn important like let me tell you okay so i did a collaboration with mac cosmetics who i love and they've supported me so much but i well maybe i shouldn't call them out like this (laughs) (laughs) i had to fight tooth and nail to get a plus size black model um to shoot with me for this campaign and then when she showed up on set the hairstylist handed her a brush and was like here can you brush out your hair Like, this is the top echelon of the industry making these campaigns. They didn't even have a hairstylist that was, like, diving into this model's hair. Like, they literally gave her a brush and let her do it herself. I was, like, just shocked. Like That would never happen to a white woman. Like, this is now. This isn't, like, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. There's just so much um, not education. And I think, you know, talking about, like, I love um, hearing Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, who's the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, having uh she was speaking recently and she's like i won't hire a beauty editor who doesn't know what my hair type is like 3c 4c there's so many different texture and curl pattern um but it just really like clicked in my mind like as a black beauty editor you have to know all about white beauty Mm -hmm. or white hair or different type of hair but as a white beauty editor i feel like there hasn't been an expectation that white beauty editors know everything about you know edge control or just different hairstyles or or makeup um tones and so yeah, that's why we need more people at the top who mm-hmm. come from diverse backgrounds to really tell the stories of beauty that and and it's just so um 
entrenched in white supremacy Mm -hmm. because you know it goes beyond just like who's desirable or who's beautiful because that sort of value system and benchmark goes all the way down to us having to have a movement called black lives matter yeah you know it's it's and i think people are like no that's a crazy connection it's like no white supremacy is going to use all cultural institutions and all political institutions to reinforce the idea that certain bodies are more valuable than others and to think that such an explicit you know grotesque industry that makes it very obvious wouldn't be perpetuating that idea is you know kind of troubling to me i think on that you you supported the miami black mama state bailout campaign alongside with fempower who was part of a national effort uh, with song shout out to y'all um and you supported the campaign both as an individual and also as a brand. I'm curious if there was any pushback, there was any questions. I remember I was getting a lot of questions of why only black mamas and having to do that extra labor for folks was very frustrating. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious for you, like how, how was that met on your side? That experience was transformative for me personally. <clears throat> it was an honor to be able to work with FemPower on the Black Mom bailout um, for Mother's Day, it was, I feel like, for me, to physically be there, I don't know, like, you know, there's so many things that I feel like I talk about or many people talk about in theory, like, mm-hmm. you know, the incarceration rates for black people are higher than white people, you know, for, for black women especially. Like, theoretically, like, it's it's on paper but like to be there to you know see people picking people up from jail um when they've been bailed out to help people like to physically be driving um black moms to get their social security card to help get housing cell phones there's just so many like transportation there's so many like physical ways in which that this theoretical idea about um you know um abolitionist work really like came into a physical realm for I don't know I was just like it was really great to feel on a physical level how painful the system is how like demolishing it is to someone's like whole community like I understood like more about like how community how communities are like um intentionally broken through mm-hmm. the incarceration system like you just see like people's it's hard to keep in community when you're you know, behind bars when you're not able to make calls to not be on Instagram, like it's just so hard. And so it was, I think, an honor to have that ability to see theory be put into practice and to be put into action. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity. And um, but yeah, as far as pushback, I don't know. I was telling you, like, you know, for me, I feel like one of my um, jobs with um, working with FemPower is to leverage whatever network and access that I've been able to gain over these years to kind of like get people to um, join like our fight for freedom. And so it was really fun to reach out to all the people that I've come in contact. And I think the biggest, it wasn't necessarily like negative criticism, but the, the, the worst thing that could happen was people ignore me, like <laughs> go away. <laughs> and so it wasn't that bad, but um, no, it's really cool to see people come together for such an important cause. And another designer who I really love that's doing a lot of this work is Telfar. Um, he's another designer that actually did the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund with me. And um, he's done a lot of work um, 
fighting against prisons, he do- donates a lot of his um, earnings to um, bail people out from Rikers in New York City. Mm. It was a terrible, um, scary place that a lot of people are thrown in, waiting trial, waiting bail. Um, so it's cool. To, to, I mean, it's just a great opportunity. I think we've been doing at Chromat every year. We donate to different um organizations that we believe in like we've donated to the audrey lord project in new york which is like a trans um non-binary centered um space where people of color um can kind of, they do a lot of trans day of remembrance trans day of action um and in different places like the southern poverty law project the aclu you know anytime that i can find a way to siphon off like our profit to these causes i think it's really important to show show solidarity in any way we can yeah, no, it was it was honestly great having you be part of it, and I think also shout out to all the comrades in New York who've been working really hard, organizing really hard to shut down Rikers, and we're really pushing to not have New York open any more new jails. Um, so in awe and respect of of them, they really, really, really inspire all of us and people who are trying to do similar work here in Miami. But yeah, you know, I mean, when it when it comes to the whole bailout, it was, I think for me, something that was interesting, but kind of expected was, you know, I think I, I didn't want it to be packaged as like a charity project, right? Like I, I, I was trying to be in my own respect as intentional about grounding people like this. We're just following black radical tradition collectivizing resources with your people to liberate other black people um but but also in the process I don't you know it was kind of shocking to me to realize how many people you know I think when you think about cops and prisons it seems like still our society is on the tip of like there's a there's bad cops but you know they serve an important role in our society where we are coming from a very clear understanding of no their role in society is to brutalize and enact violence on certain bodies and certain people um and then similarly around jails and the whole carceral state but for people to learn that you know over like 75 percent of people in local jails have actually not been convicted of any crime um for me and i really hope that that sort of knowledge landed in people in a way where it begins for them it begins the sort of journey of questioning what is the purpose and role of these jails in the first place if you have so many people who actually are just sitting in jail because they're poor um so no it's it's you know something about the carceral state really entrenches all the like levels of oppression um so i was just grateful that you were sort of bridging a grassroots work here you know with all these people and the press and you know people that who might not be otherwise um you know, otherwise introduced to the sort of like abolitionist thought. So I really appreciated that. So something you mentioned earlier was, and and that I also mentioned because I'm excited about, is that it's been I think about a year since you moved to Miami, right? Yes. Yay. Um. So t- talk to me a little bit about why why Miami. You know, I I think when you zoom out and you think, <coughs> okay, you're a successful fashion designer in new york why are you moving to miami i love it here i'm so happy to be here i love every second um yeah so me and my wife moved to miami a year ago 
we'd been coming to Miami actually since uh, at least 2014 when I first debuted Chromat Swim and we would come for Miami Swim Week. Oh, I loved hearing like, it's so funny because I feel like Swim Week, such a weird, strange place, <laughs> really brought us together, you mm-hmm. and I. And um, it was, uh, so yeah, it was cool to just think more about like how we met. Um, so I've been coming for Swim Week since, yeah, Chromat started doing Chromat Swim. Miami Swim Week has been... Um, a wild ride. So I've been coming for many years and I really believe in chromats. Like our focus on swim is so important to us, especially because swim is such a vulnerable garment. People feel like people's ideas about their own bodies and their own like, um, there's just, it's such a complicated garment. And I feel like our focus on celebrating all different body shapes and sizes and ability levels and gender presentations, our um our work is most felt in this one more category mm-hmm. and i feel really strongly about building our swim world to be really accepting and really inclusive it's so needed um but it was cool to hear kind of like think back about how we met because i know fempower had done a thing um the year before we met which was a fuck swim week yes <laughs> and so i think it was really cool that you guys had put your um you know stake in the ground and saying you know swim week is problematic fuck this shit and then like ne- that next year at the very same time was when we met and we had just Chroma had just debuted a campaign called pool rules mm-hmm. where we outlined 10 rules for acceptance and inclusion at the pool as demonstrated by these amazing babe guards erica hart um who's a non-binary um cancer survivor and sex activist um, Mama Cax, who's an amazing disability advocate, has a really cool prosthetic leg and does a lot of swimwear and body campaigns. She's a style blogger. Um, we had Gina Rosera, a trans-Filipina activist who I love. Uh, Denise Badeau, our first ever plus-size model from way back in the day, who's also an amazing Latina, Latinx mother. Um, and then Emma, which was one of the first supermodels, uh, plus-size supermodels in the 90s, so she's like... Um, been doing it for a while but to debut these pool rules which was like intolerance not tolerated body hair accepted all abilities welcomed um, unlimited lgbtq pda there's so many um cool pool rules that we had i love the cellulite one. Oh yeah celebrate cellulite mm-hmm. yeah so we created these pool rules and it came that one year later where we um we had been asked to host a party for swim week at the standard and it was all through, I met Fempower through my friend Susie. Susie Analog, who is an amazing DJ producer and one of the most stylish people I know. But she, mm-hmm. I, I knew, um, she was a friend from New York who had moved to Miami previously. I knew I wanted to have her DJ the party. And then I was like, who else should we have DJ? And so she introduced us to Fempower and Loka DJed, Fempower mm-hmm. hosted. And that's when our world's first co- um came together and so it was really cool to think like the year before you were saying fuck swim week and then the year after we created this whole new like reimagining of what swim could be Mm -hmm. and so i felt honestly i'd been coming to miami for many many years for swim week for basil literally any chance i could get and i've loved it every time but being in community with fem power was the first time i was like okay i see my people here like me and my wife christine were like all right, these are like like-minded social justice act- activists, people who are using their creativity to change the world. It was so illuminating and so inspiring to see people doing the work that we've been, you know, interested in doing and engaging in in New York, um, here in Miami. So honestly, like meeting you and, and your crew, like really 
inspired me to be like okay well there's a city i love like <laughs> my friends are there and i could be doing this work here so all those things combined to be like me and christine were like all right so what's the plan when are we moving because <laughs> you know we had been thinking about starting a family one day and um i don't know like being pregnant and raising a kid in new york it never really seemed like something we were that interested in so we'd been thinking of like what's next for us and um eventually like yeah, we were thinking, well, let's just try Miami. We'll do six months in Miami, six months in New York. Very glamorous, by coastal yeah. living. But after six months, we were like, no, don't make me go back. <laughs> I love it too much. So we extended our lease, and we've been here for you now. Lease is continuing to be extended, <laughs> extended, extended. But yeah, like being here in Miami has allowed me to kind of jump off the treadmill of, of running a company for the past 10 years, going from collection to collection to collection. It's a never-ending cycle. You know, if you don't release a collection, you don't get money and you don't exist. Like, it's like mm -hmm. you have to keep pumping and to keep creating, keep outputting to survive. And it's so extractive. It's, it's grueling. Oof. It's really extractive. It's grueling. It's never-ending. I mean, it's exciting and it's restorative, you know, when you can constantly feed, feed that inspiration. But I felt like I was... Um, a little drained a little burnt out and looking for a way to kind of just take a step back and it's allowed me to think big picture about like what's the point of all this like how am i you know what is how am i making an impact on the world like what what are my goals in the industry what do i want to do as someone who has a fashion brand and so it's been a really powerful way to just create space for big big thinking and i think almost immediately one of the big uh things that came out of living here was a focus on sustainability because mm -hmm. as you know like miami's on the front lines of climate change and even fun power right when i moved to town you guys had the big thing during art basel where you had um enter 2040 wait <laughs> can you explain about it was yeah. such a cool event yeah 2040 so um the the un dropped like their big climate report like late summer or like maybe early fall and it talked about 2040 being like this you know this sort of apocalyptic time and of course florida and miami is mentioned in the report and you know all these different places yeah the whole world is being affected and i remember we were like okay what are we gonna do for our basel um and for us our basel is kind of like funny i think to anyone who's from miami it's you know, it's it's a place where elite come. It's super whitewashed, super capitalist. Um, and given uh, sort of like our positionality, we we're trying to be as intentional as possible. It's about saying, okay, if we're an abolitionist, queer, black and brown art collective of Miami, then let every space that we cultivate and foster reflect that. And for us, I mean. You know, I remember crying when I read that. I I have lived in Miami the last 21 years of my life, and I'm 25, so essentially my entire life. And sort of like every important experience I have in my mind has happened here. My family's here. Uh, you know, like essentially almost everyone I love is here or has some connection to Miami. Um, and it's such a beautiful place. Like, I don't know. I, I look at Miami when I'm in the beach or in my backyard. And I'm like, God, this is, it's it's almost like dangerously paradise-like. So the idea that, you know, this climate crisis is just impending. And that it's being architectured by, you know, corporate elites, the oil 
people, you know, just like the 1% and that the people who are suffering are just black and brown communities, which is what makes up Miami. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, it, it, it like destabilized all of us. And I remember we came together to like an Art Basel planning, um, some of like the key uh, or like core members of Empower and Leadership. And I remember all I had written, my thing was 2040. <laughs> And, you know, I was ready to tell everyone about the article and, oh, I'm shocked. We need to do something. But everyone went around. I think I was like one of the last people to go around. And by the time it got to me, every single person in that room had mentioned climate crisis, whether it was 2040 or otherwise, like with that name. So it was obvious that for us, you know, if people were going to come to Miami, potentially just for that time in the entire year, for them to leave the space, like we're in this sort of we're in the edge of a dying world. Um, and unless we completely sort of like revolutionize and center the leadership of black femmes, non-binary folks, brown folks, working class people, then the crisis is impending. Um, yeah, and it was amazing to have you there. I think that was like, I was like, wait, is Becca moving here? <laughs> um, and yeah, it was just like a two-day sort of immersive um experience there was some art installations we had panels and workshops around everything from like you know we had you there talking about sustainability and and why it's so uh necessitated and it's urgent it's not like a second it can't be an afterthought for people um we talked about uh thinking beyond the binary of gender like all these things were related um and of course we partied, you know, very femme power fashion. Um, but yeah, 2040 was, was kind of a big deal for us. And I think what sometimes people don't understand or maybe envision around Miami is the idea that, yes, it's a super capitalist elite serving place. No one's going to challenge that. But at the same time, it's a, it's a city of working class people, of Caribbean people, of immigrants, of black folks. Um, who invariably are invested in a new world. Um, and it's a little difficult because sometimes it feels like we're building, you know, we're building it from ground zero, like a sort of like radical movement and creating space for critical thought. But I think if FemPower, not just FemPower, but other organizations, you know, shout out to Dream Defenders, Power You, all of our comrades, um, if they prove anything, um, is that there's a need for it and there's a desire to move differently, to relate to people differently, um, even in a place as uh, segregated, as you know, stratified as Miami. Um, so that's why I'm deeply committed to the community, not just because it's my people, but I actually think there's a really unique opportunity here to build new worlds because it's, you know, we don't really have much of an option. Um, I remember I was doing an interview and someone asked me, where do you envision FemPower in the next 10 years? And I actually started crying because, you know, I think the reality is, I don't, I don't know, unless the reality is unless fundamental changes happen um, and accountability happens for people, Miami is going to go through a lot of it continue to go through a lot of challenges in, in the next couple of years. You know, people are being kicked out of their communities that they've built since the 80s, you know, for decades, because, you know, climate change gentrifiers want to build condos that are going to be empty the entire year. Um, 
so it's it's a challenge so i think part of me i think when i'm most honest with myself is either i stay here and build it or i don't know if someone else is gonna do it for us yeah empower is really doing that work and envisioning a future where 2040 will be like a beautiful inclusive yes. <laughs> <clears throat> and i think in the same in the same vein that you've brought up it's we're just trying to shift the normal mm-hmm. you know like to not get praise that we're talking about yeah inequality i was just at um the helen led a zine workshop last night at the um freehand and i was there and i don't know something clicked in my mind because she had a whole printout about bell hooks's art on my mind Mm -hmm. which is a work talking about the role of artists in the black liberatory struggle and she had a part about cultural hegemony Mm -hmm. and just um she was explaining that like the hegemony is like stories we tell ourselves about our culture that then become true and it really like i don't know it just made me realize that as creative people we are the storytellers we are envisioning the future that can be true that like as the stories are told and people accept them as truth then it becomes truth you know and i think that's our role as artists and creatives is to create this world that we want to see where people are you know equal and celebrated and have access and have um freedom more than Mm -hmm. anything is to envision freedom for for everyone um but it 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 kind of like empowered me to be like okay well we have the power to change how we feel and how the culture feels like that is a power that is granted to the storytellers and the creatives of the world in the past it's been the only people who are able to tell these stories or have the platform to tell the stories are Mm -hmm. you know a certain type of person who is you know white people um who people who have benefited from like being a part of the patriarchy being a part of the um elite class um but hopefully now i I feel things are changing with the rise of social media and everyone having their own platform to reach their own audience like we're able to collectivize and tell these stories in a greater way and so it really inspired me to just keep doing the work of like using our platforms to yeah to rewrite history Mm -hmm. and to write a better future yeah and you know kind of like our revolutionary ancestors reminds us of that you know black panther party was very intentional about having you know their minister of culture emory douglas who is who i think of like a lizzie in a femme power i think of helen and if you know these people hello (laughs) um because it every everything you know war on drugs wouldn't have uh just moved solely through policy and the car source they wouldn't have been built of today wouldn't have just been built off policy change there had to be a narrative there had to be the super predator narrative that young black people black kids black children are just uncontrollable there had to be a narrative that poor people are less deserving that poor people are violent that poor people are you know deserve what's coming their way and all these moving parts for us to be where we are today. And, and you know, I really challenge all artists to not think that their labor is neutral. It never is. Yeah. It just simply never is. That's just not the world that we live in. And either you're going to support the status quo or you're going to disrupt it. Yeah. There isn't much of an in-between. And I hope that, you know, artists are sort of like coming into their own consciousness and realizing the power that they have in this sort of like ecosystem of thought and and action. Well, Becca, 
it's so great to have you not just here in the sunroom and on the podcast but just to have you in miami i'm so in awe of everything you do and have done i feel like getting to hear your story um just feels like a blessing and i i'm excited to share this with everyone um <clears throat> there's not a lot of opportunities for folks and you've kind of gone against the grain and carved out your own path and have remained true to what matters and if there's any industry that's you know not trying to uplift that we know it's it's the one that you're kind of in right now um so i really want to thank you for everything that you do thank don't you don't let these elite motherfuckers stop you <laughs> <laughs> You got the people behind your back, and that's what matters. Thank you, Nikki. No, thank you. Thanks for tuning in, y'all.